when we took over and formed the regional department, we had a, a couple of different things. I called it the Goldilocks story because we had one department that was okay. We had one department that was fair and we had one that was a little bit better. And my job was to take all of those things and put them together into a high functioning organization. And organizations don't get to have problems because of the fact that they address certain issues immediately. So what we had to do was to change the dynamic. And I had the pleasure of signing on a agreement where I had to establish residency. And until I could buy a house, I parked my RV right outside the police department. And at two o'clock in the morning, they'd hear flip-flops. I think some people still have trouble eating after hearing the sound of flip-flops, but I would be walking around asking what's happening, what's going on, why are we doing things this way, or why aren't you out on the street patrolling? And uh, that accountability piece was well-established early on. And it also did uh, another thing that helped me from a management perspective, because some things you just can't change, or you shouldn't waste time trying to change. In a small agency, you should establish the criteria and the expectations for the new agency. I did a little bit of both of those things. And when we started out, we hit the ground running. Today, my guest is Chief David Steffen of the Northern Lancaster County Regional Police Department. In this episode, we talk about regional policing and community safety and how the regional focus shapes standards and professionalism. I find it interesting that in a regional approach, many more sets of eyes and ears are trained to the police. I ask Chief Steppen if this is what drives his efforts to create a culture of openness and accountability. His response to my questions reveal a deeper desire to move policing forward into a new era. He talks about the importance of technology, training and education, and a culture of openness to change the way people interact with and understand the role of police in their community. His aim is a standard of excellence that can be seen and measured, but also reflects a process of thoughtful examination. He provides good examples of why he evolved practices and policies to create a sustainable practice of high-performance policing. You can learn more about Chief Stephan's background and contact links in the show notes. So. Off we go. It is really good to have you here today, Chief Stephens. And I want to start right off with having you tell us your story. You did serve for a long time in another very successful regional police department. I would like to learn something from your story. And there's, that is that somewhere along the way, as you developed in your career, you put an exclamation point or an emphasis around the value of transparency and accountability. And I want to learn how that became something that, that was central to your leadership. At least that is the way that I understand it. And I learned that not from you, but from the managers who worked with you. So it interests me how your leadership philosophy did develop. As with most people, I'm from example, at Northern York County Regional Police Department, I was fortunate enough to have a, an entire career with persons that I respected in leadership positions. And the emphasis was always on performance and how we can do better and how we can deliver a quality product and be professional. And a large portion of what we did also centered on the delivery of police services to multiple jurisdictions and providing them not only the fact that we gave them good service, but we actually provided them proof that they were getting what they paid for as far as delivery of services. And the way that we did that was to establish and utilize a, a system of tracking of time and other key performance metrics to to provide those proofs and transparency. I wonder if you could share a little bit about what you know about the why of forming a regional police department. 
And in particular, I'm interested in what made the municipalities in Lancaster willing and just even able to make this happen when we know it's been very difficult across the Commonwealth to form these regional partnerships with police. I think, I think like a lot of things, uh, municipalities came to a position where they realized that perhaps they weren't optimizing their service delivery and having a proportionate return on what they were putting in as far as the fiscal piece of it. So when they looked at other municipalities surrounding, they all came to the same conclusion that perhaps there's a better way that we can do this. And by working together, we can come up with that solution. And subsequently, they did a a study, requested a study. And as a result of that study, there were certain recommendations that they adopted and moved forward with the establishment of a regional police department. So there were some shifts happening in the area, as I recall at the time. Maybe some of the departments were had retiring chiefs. The fact that you became chief and that you came from York is a little unusual, I think. There is in regional formation of regional police departments so often a, a, a concern about how is that position going to be filled. There must have been some consensus around that. What can you share with about that? Uh, there was a competitive process. And one thing about regional policing that makes it a little bit different than everybody else is you have to have an understanding of how all these pieces fit together to make them work and work well. And there's the management pace internally, organizational behavior and organizational management. There's also the element of making certain that your municipal officials are engaged and understand the processes, procedures, and uh, elements associated with that. And most particularly, we enjoyed the benefit of having municipal managers that were experienced, that understood the problems that they faced, understood the challenges of the future. And more importantly, understood the lessons of the past. And they wanted to put those things behind them and look forward to having a professional, well-developed policing entity that would come out of the regionalization concept. Okay. So they wanted a fresh beginning with a leader who was familiar with the regional type structure and the particular challenges of such a structure. That, and I'll say this. One thing about working within a regional agency, you have opportunities for advancement, you have opportunities for training, and you have opportunities for a career trajectory that gives you that basis for understanding. In my particular case, I was a patrol supervisor. I was a drug assignment for drug investigations. I was criminal investigation supervisor. I got promoted again. I went to the records management aspect of it. And then I got promoted again, and I went back to the patrol and promoted again, and I went into criminal investigations as a supervisor of a very busy criminal investigations unit. And I was also our accreditation manager. So I also, with all that, had a broad exposure to the administration, inner workings of the police department, and also gained a, a value of understanding the importance of networking and getting ideas from other agencies, other people, not thinking that just because you're doing something and it appears to be working that you shouldn't be ready to embrace change. Yeah, I really love that. I think I may have mentioned to you when we met to explore ideas that I've always been impressed by officers when I interview them for various projects. And I'll ask them the questions, what's important to them? What would they really like to see going forward? And they will always mention professional development, which of course makes sense in a sort of superficial way that's part of an officer experience. But they were very expressive about the desire to branch out further beyond what their department was currently offering. They liked the idea of larger, the regional approach, because they saw this as a a path for opportunity. And I think about the officers who are in small departments that, that maybe feel like they're there's just no room to really grow beyond the sort of traditional types of training and development. And that's a valid concern because in many small departments, there's two things that are, are relatively 
established boundaries, there is no chance for growth. There is no chance for personal uh, self-actualization unless you, you find it. And the need for specialists in small agencies are, is minimal because of the fact that they would typically have to go outside to have those specialists come in to, to handle uh, the scenarios. So one thing about regional policing, and it, it's my passion, every officer has to have some sort of uh, self-actualization. And they get that by specialization. Not everybody's going to be a chief. Not everybody's going to be a lieutenant. Not everybody's going to be a canine officer. But everybody can be a, a participating team member and bring something important to the table. And that's what we want to establish. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to this this question of why and ask you, if you think that the regional concept improves the ability of officers to work across silos. I know police are pretty mm, well known for having collegial relationship, but I would like your point of view if the regional model does go further in terms of thinking about serving a broader area as opposed to just a specific defined community. It does. The fact that internally, we try to establish best practices, best written uh, guidance on on how to do things the right way and uh, apply technology, try to show leadership in applying technology and problem solving and solutions and encouraging our agency members to think outside the box. When we took over and formed the regional department, we had a, a couple of different things. I called it the Goldilocks story because we had one department that was okay. We had one department that was fair and we had one that was a little bit better. And my job was to take all of those things and put them together into a high functioning organization. And organizations don't get to have problems because of the fact that they addressed certain issues immediately. So what we had to do was to change the dynamic and I had the pleasure of signing on a agreement where I had to establish residency. And until I could buy a house, I parked my RV right outside the police department. And at two o'clock in the morning, they'd hear flip-flops. I think some people still have trouble eating after hearing the sound of flip-flops. But I would be walking around asking what's happening, what's going on, why are we doing things this way, or why aren't you out on the street patrolling? And uh, that accountability piece was well-established early on. And it also did uh, another thing that uh, helped me from a management perspective, because some things you just can't change or you shouldn't waste time trying to change. In a small agency, you should establish the criteria and the expectations for the new agency. I did a little bit of both of those things. And uh, when we started out, we hit the ground running. And uh, one of the things that we always ask ourselves is if we have a way of doing things and it doesn't appear to be working, we ask why we did that. Why do we do it that way? And if the answer is that's the way we've always done it, I know right away that's a red flag. Time to look at that problem, apply a new solution, look at it, revise it, uh, evaluate it, and then implement. And that's the way we work in solving problems. As far as reaching out to other agencies and and, uh, participating in large-scale events, large-scale trainings, things like that, that's essential. You have to be a team player. And we stress that team player on an individual basis and on an organizational basis and on a professional basis. So we look upon it as working together internally within our own organization, assisting other organizations whenever they might need anything. We're always there to provide that support when we are asked for it. And it's not an ever- a matter of a gotcha or look what we can do. It's a matter of this is the right thing to apply these resources to solving a problem. Mm -hmm. I wonder if over the period of time that you've been in your position there, whether you've seen some evolution, if you will, in thinking. I can imagine when you first began that there were different communities with some different sets of expectations. And that there was some need for you to articulate, communicate 
how this was going to work. Just thinking from that leadership level, was there early on a need to really come together and say, this is the way we're going to move forward and it might be a little different from what you're used to with police services? That's a very good point. And one of the, one of the things that we faced was the resistance to change. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the key elements is having to assure the public that there's going to be meaningful change. The simple fact of the matter is people become comfortable with the the certain levels of uh, government and policing is the most, uh, the most visible form of government. And uh, they worry about losing that local uh, control, so to speak, or accountability. They may not see the same faces all the time over and over again, sense that they're going to be losing some familiarity. And that's typically not the case because uh, with the regional policing concept, those officers apply the same techniques to a wide array of communities. So we can apply a much bigger solution to crime and to public safety than if we were just dealing within a small mm-hmm. area that doesn't have as many resources to apply. I'm going to just use my imagination here and think of a situation where there's perhaps it's a new elected official that hasn't really had enough time to develop a full impression of the regional work that you do, but communicates to, I'm going to ask you how they would communicate. Let's just say they're dissatisfied. They don't want you to get involved in this particular area. They hear that the police are doing X, Y, Z, and they don't think that's what they're police should be doing. Where does that elected official from one of those municipalities, where do they go with that concern and how do you receive it? Is it a a body that meets quarterly? Who do you meet with to address issues, concerns in a more formal way? Okay. So if I understand the question, it, it involves structure and how we interact with our charter municipalities and our uh, participating municipalities. Yes. So structurally, they have their own level of government, the borough council, the township commission, the township board, and then we have the regional police commission. And the regional police commission is comprised of members of the community that are elected officials, two, two from each municipality, and they all have equal votes. It doesn't matter if the municipality has 25,000 residents or 5,000 residents. They have two votes, and uh, typically all of that information is brought to us by the representatives of the municipalities that sit on our commission. Now, we also have meetings that we have within our organizational structure with our township managers and borough managers that we exchange information back and forth on areas of concern. I can give you a good example. Something is completely outside the realm of policing, MS4. So the cops are sitting there talking to the managers and we get to hear about the MS4 and we say, because they're having a side conversation during our meeting, and we say, we have a drone. You want us to take pictures of that? And they're like, yeah, hey, that's great. So it saves them time, it saves them money, it gives us a training missions for our drone operators, and we apply a solution across the board that meets everybody's needs. Now, as far as actual problems, if there's a problem, it comes to me administratively, we address it, an area of concern. Typical areas of concerns involve speeding. Pennsylvania is one of the few states in the, in fact, it's the only state in the country that doesn't allow municipal radar, but we would go out and do proactive projects using technology, radar signs, radar boards, those types of things that are basically educational and informational. Doesn't do much as far as increasing compliance. It's more of an awareness piece. And then when we follow that up with the enforcement, that's what seems to make the difference. Okay. That's great. And just to be clear, one more detail, you would go to a municipal meeting on occasion. Would you show up at one of their meetings to address attendees or something else? Sure. It, I don't go to every single meeting, but we do periodically go to meetings. We reach out at different functions to the municipal officials, and there's a real understanding and exchange of information between 
myself or an executive level officer in our agency with their elected officials to resolve problems. Okay. Okay. Let me then switch focus a little bit to the officers and the, some of the early challenges when you were forming the new department. And I like your, your no surprise rule. And I want you to tell us how that worked. And I, what I'm trying to get at here is that early on, that need to build trust with people who did not know who you were and probably had a variety of responses in terms of what they thought about this new regional concept. The first thing that has to be understood is uh, within the organizational structure, there was never a time when we would not communicate with our borough or, and township managers and with our elected officials on our commission. And the commission, they were the primary stakeholders. So if a major event occurred in one of the municipalities, I would make notification to them saying, hey, we have a homicide at this location. You may be getting calls. Let your municipal officials know that there's a, an active scenario underway and we are addressing it. And we would keep them updated on that. Not in an in a detailed way, but to just keep them advised because there's nothing a municipal elected official hates more than to have a surprise launched upon them as they're standing in line at a grocery store. Hey, I heard there's a murder and they don't know anything about it. That's important. It does two things. It, it, it reinforces the ability of government to participate, communicate amongst different levels. And it also has a reinforcing effect on the the respect that has to happen in that separation of services and uh, building confidence. The other thing too is with the commission, we go back to the uh, widely publicized example with the uh, Jerry Sandusky case that Penn State was litigated on where the trustees didn't know anything about what was going on. If there's one thing an elected official has to despised. It's the word surprise. And uh, we don't want surprises. We want to have a constant flow of information, a constant flow of solution implementation, and uh, keeping, keeping everybody advised at an appropriate level of awareness. So when you came into the department, this had to be conveyed down to, to the officers as well. And I don't know, would you be willing to tell your story of, of setting up your camper outside? I'm thinking again about early days where you have a vision for what this department's going to be, but the officers who were already, they were on board, but maybe they weren't totally on board with the, what you had in mind. Oh, yeah, sure. I, this is a funny story now, but it, at the time, it probably caused a bunch of people a loss of sleep and some general confusion about what their lives were going to look like. So I wonder, uh, going forward, as you began to select candidates from outside, did you do anything specific to make sure that you got the right candidates? One of the, one of the most important things is to understand the constraints that you have to work within. And uh, certainly, uh, it's a simple fact. Not every employee, particularly if you didn't have the opportunity for selection and uh, training of those employees, not everybody is an all-star mm -hmm. and uh, some people are just problem employees. So there's two things that have to happen. Either they change their behaviors, you change their behaviors by creating an understanding of expectations and uh, adherence to uh, the regulations and our directives, or they leave or you help them leave. That's a painful reality, but the fact of the matter is you got to do it. It's always the organization first, the agency, and uh, where you want to go. And some people are toxic. You can, you can lose a lot of time and effort if you have a toxic employee that you're trying to work around. Our philosophical bent was to establish those things and handle it with our due process and uh, give them an opportunity to change. And if they didn't, we would uh, move on with or without them. And uh, those expectations are key. Now, as far as 
selection of employees, um, now we're in a completely different scenario. The, the fact of the matter is it's, it's a challenge to recruit new officers for most places. We haven't particularly had that issue because of the fact that we do things differently. We are transparent in our recruitment process and ex explanation of understanding of what we want and how we're going to achieve it and give full access to our agency's rules and regulations and everything on our webpage. So people coming into our organization to apply have a pretty good sense of what we are all about and how we operate. That's great. And who is involved in the selection process? Do you have representatives from the community, from your municipalities, or is it more of an internal selection it's, process? It's an internal process. It, certainly, if we're going to be selecting police officers, we want to have people that are going to fit into our organizational subculture and understand the, uh, the things that we've done internally to create that succession plan within the organization to understand the career development pieces that we have and uh, the training and what we have to offer. In our particular case, we have a variety of ways that we can hire since we're a quasi-governmental agency. We're not bound by the same restrictions that uh, boroughs and uh, some townships have as far as hiring. We're under the Police Tenure Act. We have the ability to be flexible and what I call nimble in that process so that we can identify a, a good candidate, a candidate that appears to be outstanding, and we can move right into the hiring and selection process for them and expedite that so that we're not, we're not waiting and screening through commissions and other services that with the time, by the time they approve it, the candidate's gone, it took yeah. a job at another agency. I think this is very interesting, what you're saying. It's a little different from philosophy, from the way it's set up in, in other municipalities, but I think it's appropriate for the time for what you just said, which is it's important to hire rapidly as possible in this particular time of a very tight market. In our particular case, we have patrol officers, we have detectives, we have sergeants, we have corporals, we have lieutenants, and the chief sits on the interview panels. And we have, everybody has the same ability to rank and weight and grade the questions. And one of the, the key pieces to that is that we don't just stop once we hire. One of the things that is very important is to make certain that you're getting not only a candidate that's going to have a good cultural fit, but you're going to get a candidate that you understand you have to do an adequate background investigation on. You have to do all of the things to comply with statutory requirements under Act 57 and make certain that you don't leave any stone unturned because you can hire quickly, but the biggest piece is it costs a lot of time and money to train new officers. And it costs even more money to get rid of a, an officer that's not working out within that organization after they're tenured. So that's, that's important. And the other piece to it is too, we do understand the due process of police officers and what they're entitled to under collective bargaining. And those things don't have to be mutually exclusive in the process of engagement and team building. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you on the question of of cultural fit. We did not really address this when we met previously, but it does come to my mind now. Um, when you think about cultural fit, also it's the area that you're serving and the residents. And I'm thinking about also development of team. In other words, are you hiring with any thought to where they come from? Or are you hiring with any thought of whether it's gender diversity or ethnicity diversity, do any of those kinds of concerns come to mind when you think about fit? Certainly, they have to for two reasons. First of all, you can't exclude a candidate just based upon any of those external factors that you just mentioned. And desirability of candidates, we have a, 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 a scenario where we look at our community's demographics and we apply that towards our our officer makeup, we've had 
officers that are members of various minority communities outside of of the female candidates. Those officers typically are recruited by larger state organizations because of the fact that they have a desirable skill set. And we get that. The fact of the matter is with today's job market, if you can hire somebody and they stay five years before they move on to another organization, that's just reflective of the private job sector as well. We're understanding of that and it's not something we're grateful for, but we get it. The job thing has changed dramatically. When I started, the expectation was you got on a police department, you stay till you retired, and then you collect your pension, and you were a happy guy or gal. Not like that anymore. We, we understand the dynamics of that. Yeah. We should say, Chief Stephens, that you have a retirement trajectory that's active. And so succession wasn't something that you took lightly, I'm sure, from the moment you took this job. And so you take it pretty seriously. And I'd like to hear about your thoughts. You made an impression in terms of your leadership. Uh, I know that you want that to carry forward. What are some ways in which you are specifically thinking about succession planning to make sure that there is, a, there is continuity? That's a good question. And uh, once again, it's not just succession, it's having the right successor, someone that is a good cultural fit, has a combination of education, training, and commitment to the organization. And uh, we're lucky in our particular case because we have that. But that's not something that occurs overnight. We, we have an emphasis on establishing first-line supervision as one of the most important things that an organization has and offering Train, training and more training to those individuals and uh, <laughs> formal education as well. All of those things add up to a successful transition. In our particular case, working together with uh, my replacement for a period of time, my philosophy is if you can't have an internal successor, then that's a failure of leadership on the existing leader. You mm -hmm. can't develop those people within your organization. Sometimes there is meaningful need for change outside the organization, but if things are going well, it, they go well for a reason. That's because of the, the culture and the understanding of expectations within the group. One of the strengths that we enjoy is people have specific, specific tasks that they're responsible for, fleet management, fleet acquisition, things like that. And we do things differently in that realm. We have a four-year plan. We buy our entire fleet, keep it for four years, then get rid of it all at once. All new stuff. There's no used transition back and forth with stripping cars. And that makes a big difference in cost control. And it also gives everybody a large project management experience. The guys in charge of that interact with the management team. They interact with the police management team. They interact with the township managers and municipal managers. So everybody has an understanding of the budget impacts, the smoothing, the strategic value of that planning, and how that impacts costs moving forward. Benefits administration, another piece to that, that we all talk about at our different in-house meetings. If I were to ask your officers whether it feels different to work for a regional department as opposed to a municipal government, what would they tell me? That's an interesting question because we have a certain ability to measure that. We have the people that did work in uh, uh, independent police departments. And then we, majority of people here only do regional policing or they came in from outside departments to, to the regional policing environment. We actually ran an internal survey that measured some of those things as far as feeling wanted, feeling it's a part of the decision-making process within the organization. And we came out well ahead on that survey. And actually, we came out surprisingly satisfied. Now, you know how it is. You always have one or two people that can skew some of the results, but uh, on the majority of the questions were, it was a measure of satisfaction. And let me 
put it to you this way. Satisfaction is different than happiness. Not everybody runs around within an organization that they're deliriously happy. But if you set the stage for self-actualization, generally speaking, satisfaction is the result. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems to me you're thinking about a broader community. You really don't have the opportunity to close down in your thinking. This is the way we've always done it because it's just more dynamic. There's just more people that are involved in giving feedback to the police. And so as we go into this performance piece, which I was attracted to your organization and talking to you ever since this was described to me by Dan Zimmerman some time ago when we were talking. And it seems to me that the cornerstone of your performance program is this sort of transparency. And as you said, all eyes on. It's not that all eyes are always on, but there is a very high degree of accountability, as you say, tracking and measuring the department. So I want you to talk a little bit about this. And I'll say that, that uh, as I did to you, that traditional police performance systems have always been very difficult for me to comment on. Sometimes people send me a copy and say, what do you think of our performance system? And I'm thinking, how do you get effective feedback from a form with a rank system of one through five and maybe a hundred different factors that had to be checked off? So when you told me you don't do traditional performance evaluations, that really intrigued me. So I did get a chance to take a look at the platforms. I can visualize now that there's a a system that anybody can access where performance is tracked. So it's daily, which sounds like very granular, but it, it works well in the culture. It does. It does. It works for us. And there's a lot of different moving pieces. It, it's funny because of the fact that we use technology to facilitate a lot of our day-to-day -day things operationally. We don't use technology as what I call the gotcha, okay? We don't go out there and look for uh, My philosophy on this is we get more out of catching people doing something right than we catch them doing something wrong. Now, we do use all kinds of different technology applications. We have, we look at those areas of risk management for police departments and how do we control our risk and how do we keep our people to best protect them because the only cloak we have to protect our officers is accountability and uh, transparency and having effective policy guidance and adherence to that. While we have the body-worn cameras, we have all of our stuff is interactive on a single platform. We can walk into an interview and punch in the number and it goes right into our uh, same platform as our body-worn cameras, our in-car cameras, our uh, booking area cameras, everything, so that the officers don't have to keep making a whole lot of different reporting elements or things like that. So that helps them do their job and do it better. Now, as far as performance, we can track cars. We know how fast they're going. We also have a system where it's a lot of peer-based uh, reward, and that's important. We have an automated system that uh, we're using for our human resource function outside of our training function that in our world, our guys and girls can pick up their smartphone, their iPad, their in-car device, and they can access any piece of information our organization may have. All of our policies, all of our reward programs, our incentivization as far as peer review, peer, peer support, all of those things. But we also have the ability to track officers going to critical incidents, the death of a child, a large, a large crash where people are grievously injured or killed, suicides, things like that take a toll on officers on an emotional basis. And it's also an area of emphasis for emerging wellness programs and police administration and things like that. So. We have a system where we can actually use this guardian system that we're implementing and using and track their appearances at those critical events or traumatic events. Uh, we do 
our, all of our field training metrics on that so that we can track an officer's behaviors so we can track an officer's use of force, those types of things. Not as a gotcha, because use of force is a necessary part of policing. It's, it's not something that's uh, uh, often understood, but it's a simple fact of life. You're, it, sometimes you're going to have to use force. But if you're using force excessively or you're using force more frequently than your peers, we can establish baselines for that and have an early warning network so that we can start to ask those questions. What's going on here? Is it a matter of training? Is it a matter of an individual that may have outside influences, lowering their thresholds towards use of force, that type of thing? It gives us a red flag, an early intervention system, and it also provides us a, a good baseline for understanding what the use of force or some of these other things are within the organization. Yeah, that is a, obviously a, a complex area, which would be an interesting topic for another episode, but I, I do want to stay on this accountability that we didn't talk about the 15 minute rule. And I don't know what you call it there. Is it the 15 minute rule or is it, a, but you track within very small increments, which again, got to mean something. It's got to, if we did that for, I think about this, if I was to implement this in other organizations that I work with, they would have a real shocker getting adjusted to that. But it's interesting to me well, how it was received in your department. We have a, a part of our structure in our organizational charter is providing proofs to our municipalities that we deliver the services that they pay for. And we do that. One of the means is that we track time. And uh, like I said to you when we met, I think I've lived my life in 15-minute increments since I became an officer with a regional department because I'm used to making a numeric notation in my patrol logs as to where I was and what municipality. So we have a numeric value assigned to each of our participating municipalities, and we measure time and the time that the officer spent in that municipality or in activities directed towards that municipality or administrative time for training, things like that. So that we can provide that accountability to the municipalities as to what our distribution of uh, resources were. Now, having said that, we measure various things on our patrol logs, time, obligated versus unobligated time, so that we can, if somebody says to me, geez, we just didn't have time to do that. If you're working a 12-hour shift and you have 11 and a half hours of unobligated time, what part of that 11 and a half hours prevented you from getting this task accomplished? And that's a rather frivolous example because it never happens that way. But that's the kind of thing that we can monitor and address problems should they arise. The other piece to it is it allows us to develop a good resource allocation program and to decide whether or not we need more resources for a particular municipality based upon their time purchased and things like that. So a high-performance system in a police department is one that is demonstrating what? A couple of things. We go right back to the Maslow's industrial hygiene theory. When they walk into a police station and you look around and that organization is kept, not having any trash cans overflowing, everything appears to be in its place. The officers look neat and clean. The cars are clean. To me, that's the first sign you're at a place that's okay. And if you don't see that, that's the first sign to me that maybe you got some work to do here and maybe that's a place to start. I was never in the military, but I was in an organization that had those expectations. And you know what? That's a good, that's a good starting point. The other piece to it is when you look at some of the, uh, the, the things that the officers are doing in review of the some of the body-worn cameras, videos, watch the adherence to policy. You can tell that those officers are, are well-trained. We also are using a virtual reality training within our organization as a scenario-driven and meets some of our expectations. And we retain those scores and training things so that we can see where that officer is on their trajectory or pathway for career development and if we need to focus on certain things. But 
when you walk into an organization, you start to look at their policies and you start to look at their appearance and the, the demeanor, uh, knowingness of the officers and their willingness to, to discuss things with you. If I get a couple of I don't knows, I don't cares, that tells me that that organization has a, a lot of work to get. But if I have people that are enthusiastic and uh, want to pick up the ball and run with it, to me, that's a sign of a high-functioning organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that impressed me the most about the system as I viewed it on the screen is that it had this concept, I call it professional portfolio concept, where if you opened up an officer's file, there you could see where there were accolades that were given by the peers. It's that peer system of where they're able, they know And I'm trying to think how it was systematized. It wasn't just a random accolade. There's areas in which you keep track of where those accolades fall. So you're really tracking where the strengths of the officers, from a peer perspective, where that's showing up. And, And I guess the vice versa is that there would be an opportunity to address concerns as well, because I think that's an area that I hear about when I interview officers is just trying to get at some of the mm, peer issues that come up that are a little more difficult to address. And one of the things that I would say about that very issue is if you know something is occurring and you don't address it, it doesn't mean it didn't happen because sooner or later, something will be a precipitating event that's the offshoot of that. So. No matter what you do, you have to address it. And this early warning system, once again, isn't a gotcha. It's, a, it's something that we would have to provide those officers that cloak of protection if they're litigated. It's also something that it, it ties into the officer wellness. Certainly, uh, employee care is important in policing because we spend tremendous amounts of time in career development, tremendous amounts of time in training, both in-house and uh, outside the training and police officers are a lot like uh, other professions in that it it just goes it doesn't matter what you did in your basic training so to speak it always matters what you did though in, in the beyond basic and that's where the value is in retaining these employees and to to keep them in the in the fold so to speak as a valued team member mm-hmm so there is this recognition that they're always going to be on that learning curve. It's not, they're not expected to be perfect all the time. What's expected is that, they're, that it be brought forward, that there's an opportunity to assess. It doesn't mean that you're going down. It just means that we're going to talk about what it is that is happening in these early warning signs. Certainly, we'd like to change that, uh, that pathway and to be honest, we're fortunate in that we have a very um, assertive employee wellness program where we have a uh, qualified mental health professional that we deal with uh, and proactively we'll send people to, to, uh, to meet with uh, our uh, service provider if they're involved in a scenario. Let me give you a great example. One Friday evening, I got a call that said our officers were just with a, an individual who shot themselves right in front of the cops. And uh, right away, we sent those officers back to the station. We had them sit down and uh, debrief them and had our qualified mental health professional involved right away to discuss with them. And uh, they went home that evening. He interviewed them the next day, met with them assured them of certain things. And then we did the follow-up piece and those officers returned to work and, uh, you know, not saying that they wouldn't have been able to cope with this, but there's best ways and best practices. And we try to adhere to those. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a moment about the period of time when the Black Lives Movement was in in full gear in, in terms of there's a lot of things going on and happening around you. And I'm curious about what you learned as a department from that experience. You talked a little bit about changes to your use of force policy, and maybe that was when you shifted to a more intensive camera policy and 
some of the other ways in which your department learned from the time that that you were a part of the policing during the Black Lives Matter movement? The events of 2020, when you look at those in hindsight, some police organizations may have had to have changes, meaningful changes, drastic changes. But in Pennsylvania, we have a program of accreditation and in best practices. And the first thing that you look at when you see such an event on TV, you're thinking, okay, this is horrendous. What do we do? How do we affect change? And most importantly, do we need to affect change? In our particular case, we had all the policies that were being presented as means meaningful change. I think they had the, the the hateful eight policies, the number of policies. We already had all those things implemented in advance of the precipitating events that you saw. Those agencies that are willing to look at those things in advance and participate in outside critiques like accreditation, they had those things in place. Now, in our particular case, one of the areas that we had, we had a use of force policy that met the accreditation requirements. But when you looked at it, some of the things that I saw with it, I thought maybe we should change this a little bit. And, uh, and uh, one of the ways that you can look at policy and realize that it's working well or not as, with comparative analysis to other organizations. And I came across a policy from the state of New Jersey that's a uniform policy used across the state. Uh, and I looked at it and I thought, man, I really hate that policy. And I looked at it, I read it, put it away, read it again, sent it to uh, some of our uh, our uh, staff members and said, I want you to read this and uh, think about it and put it away and read it again. Well, after we read it a couple of times, we decided that, you know what, this incorporates all the uh, things that we really want to have in a use of force policy. It's relatively easy to use and it uh, adheres to the principles and uh, values that we uh, we exhibit, and it, it complies with some of the 21st century policing initiatives that were put out. And those things basically it focused on the de-escalation piece and some of those other things that make use of force a, a more tolerable scenario in the public. And it didn't, trans, it didn't transfer into a, a reduction in officer safety or other things. So basically, it was we're already doing all of these things, and we're bringing it under one umbrella. We were able to implement that new policy and train our people in it and have it in place within a 30-day period, which is lightning speed for a police agency. Yes. And I have to ask you, when you said you hated the policy and it took some time to adjust to it, was it about the concern that there would be a reduction in police officer safety? Was that sort of the criteria, the lens at which you were reading that policy and trying to adjust your thinking. It was one of those pieces, and uh, it was also, uh, wow, how's this going to be accepted by the uh, by the troops, so to speak, because of the fact that it frames things a, a completely different way than we were uh, previously looking at it. And it, it wasn't necessarily some of the uh, key elements of it, because all of those things are relatively facts of law, legal basis to get things done. It was just a completely different way of looking at it. And when we talked about it, it made sense. It was basically doing all of those things we already were doing informally in a more formalized manner. Yeah. This month, the podcast theme is around the regional partnerships and projects. Next month, we're getting into community partnerships, but we also then have a month around police and community safety. I am very interested about the perceptions of safety, both from within the department, the feeling of, am I safe with my peers out in the community, that piece of safety, and then the safety of members that are in the community as they think about their interactions with the police. And I do feel, after my time speaking with you, that it is the very high standard of professionalism, very high standard around transparency and accountability that must form perceptions of 
trust, which is connected to safety. So if we think about trust as, as being a sort of a founding piece of feeling safe, no. if I can pick your brain just a little bit about how you would convey a philosophy around the perception of safety from a community perspective about their police department. If I'm going to feel safe in my community, which I do, and I know I have a very good police department where I live, it has to do with their professionalism. And there, I'm sure there's also the piece around engagement. I've been working on a study of this through stories, people telling stories of what when they felt safe and then they didn't feel safe or when they didn't feel safe and then they began to feel safe. What were some of the reasons for that shift? And when you think about that from training your officers and that with the goal, uh, we want people not only in the department, both the community and in the department to feel safe. What is that rooted? Is that relationship or engagement? Is that just trust around the standards that you adhere to is it all of that I think it's an all of the above answer and one of the things that we look at is openness do mm -hmm. people feel open to coming to the police to discuss certain problems do people feel like if they call the police they're going to get a a meaningful response and the accountability piece all of those things i don't think you can separate anything out of that you have to have all of those things layered over each other to, to come to that. I almost had to chuckle when you talked about the community safety piece, because the first thing people ask is when you start talking about going to a regional police scenario is what's that do to response time? The question becomes to them, what's your response time now? When the, their answer is always the same. I don't know. The answer is we can tell you eventually uh, in the regional scenario, we have those things, but understand this very clearly. Response time is probably one of the least important factors in any kind of police service delivery. Not everything is a true emergency. Not everything is life-threatening. And the simple fact of the matter is fire services, EMS, they have those windows built into to their response because their responses are less frequent than police responses. Police responses are, are very frequent. People expect and contact police force service provision. And the simple fact of the matter is we're going to have a lot larger population to compare as far as numbers of calls to the response. So we track all of that and we have performance standards that we try to meet and, and those measures. And we fall well underneath that that limit. But the fact of the matter is not everything's a dire emergency. And to me, the response time is probably the least important thing in the community safety package. What does matter though, is what do you do when you get there and what did you do to make a difference? From the, the work so far on that study, what comes up again and again is that the police are just a part of that community safety. You mentioned the other services. There's a whole host of emergency services that go into feeling safe. And also the community itself is responsible for perceptions of safety. If you have any kind of unrest or division within your community, it's going to take, it's not the police's responsibility to fix that. They are there to be a part of the response and aid, but that is really is up to us as a community. It, we can't just step back and say, this is the job of the police to fix this when it's really our collective responsibility. I think you're right. It's a, a community standard and it varies from community to community. And uh, it, it's like the Supreme Court said about obscenity. You know it when you see it. And the fact of the matter is, uh, it's a changing metric. It just is. And uh, it's situationally driven. And uh, what may feel like a safe community one day is a place that uh, is unsafe the next. Uh, and I'll give you a good example. Palestine, Ohio, where they had the uh, train wreck. Those people all went to bed the night before, happy as could be with the place they live, thinking they had a good life and a good community. And the next day, the rug was pulled out from underneath them. So it's a fleeting thing. 
but the perceptions of safety and perceptions of community are things that we have to be aware of and work to preserve. Yeah. And that I'm sure changed the life of officers in that area as well in terms of their role. Because if I'm suddenly feeling unsafe, I'm not trusted. And if I have to leave, then what's going to happen to my property? And there's just, I can just think of how the job would have been shaped immediately in that instance. So it's a, such a challenge. So when you retire, Chief Stephens, I think you're going to be remembered as implementing a gold standard in excellence. I wonder, though, if you suddenly had another 10 and, or 15 years to give to this profession, what are some of the challenges that you would like to tackle? I guess the first thing would be sustainability, making certain that communities have a, a strategic plan and understanding that good things don't just happen. You have to plan for them and you have to fund them and be sustainable. The other piece to it is would be from the technology piece. When I started out, technology was an electric typewriter. And I look at this today and I see all the tools that we have and all of the things that we have in place. And it's a remarkable transition. Policing has changed more than most professions and it's embracing technology and understanding fatal crashes. We do three-dimensional animation of those things, crime scenes, same type thing, the use of drones and understanding just because it wasn't something that was used in the past, that doesn't mean you shouldn't prepare for the future by establishing a foundation. If I truly had 10 more years left in before this profession, I think what I would try to do is really focus on the understanding that police departments aren't an island. They're part of the municipal structure where you can't just have funds and resources go into the police department and expect that to be a an eternal source of income. You have to have a plan, you have to have cost containment, you have to have accountability, and you have to have that communication because not every year is a great year fiscally for everybody, but the fact of the matter is the planning piece and the understanding of that is is critical. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that. There are instances when I work with municipalities when the police department can feel a bit like a black box. You're not sure exactly what's going on in there because everything they do is so separate from what the rest of the organization does. And I think what you're talking about is just more openness. It sounds like a very worthwhile endeavor. And you're going to be actually available for consulting, if I'm understanding correctly. You're in, open to doing some work with organizations following your retirement. Is that right? I am. I'm not one of those guys that can just uh, throw the off switch and sit down and uh, watch the sunset. I, I probably, uh, <laughs> probably one of my big challenges is going to learn how to relax a little bit more than I have in the past, but uh, I'm certainly available for those uh, types of uh, services. Yeah, that's great. I think the technology piece, as you described, both the sustainability, but particularly the technology piece would be a tremendous challenge. And also there's this bridge between those who've come up with less technology to those who are coming on that must have just a, a completely different view of technology. I think that would be a fascinating area to explore. So I hope you get to do that. And I hope that I get to, to follow your career in that aspect. Before we go, is there anyone that you want to mentioned that really influenced you in terms of coming up in the profession? That's a very good question. I don't come from a police family. I'm the first guy in my family was a police officer. My brother followed. He's a police officer in Montgomery County, Maryland. None of my sons or daughters decided to become police officers. The one guy that I do think made a difference in my career path was a my chief at the Northern York Regional, Ron Smeal, and uh, followed by Carl Sagatti and uh, Mark Bensel and uh, Dave Lash. All of those guys were my bosses. Uh, they're my friends. They were coworkers. Uh, they're existing chief at uh, Northern York now. I was one of his field training officers, as I was with Mark Bensel. Having all of those pieces and those 
networking opportunities you had throughout your career, those things all come, come to play. But Ron Smeal said something one time that I really do understand and took to heart. He said, a bad organization can go on forever. Good organizations need a lot of work and never, ever stop working to make your organization better and always look for things to improve and evaluate and revise. Oh, that's excellent. I know Ron Smeal is somebody that many of us, at least the older ones that have been around a while, know that name. And they're going to always remember your name as well, that you have contributed in so many ways to the profession. And I'm just really thankful you came on to share today. There is just so much good stuff that you've been able to accomplish in creating this regional department. So it's been a real pleasure for me to spend the time with you. Thank you. It's been a labor of love. Yeah, I can appreciate that.